Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on an on and ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Kevin Stadnick. Kevin is the co-founder and CEO of Abruda Space Solutions. Bruta Space Solutions is enabling the space economy through reimagined, autonomous, and safe spacecraft docking systems. 
Abruta's turnkey docking kit combines the necessary hardware and software for virtually any spacecraft to perform on-orbit servicing and logistics. In this episode, we discuss Kevin's time at Carleton's Aerospace Engineering Program, where Abruta plays in the ever-growing space industry, what the testing process looks like for a space company, why the satellite servicing space will be $14 billion by 2031, why is the space industry opportunity growing so rapidly, the regulatory environment around space, and the nuances to raising capital in the space industry. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Stadnick. Kevin, I'd like to start with your time at Carleton. You took aerospace engineering, which I feel like is a really unique degree. My university didn't have that. What really drew you to that program? Was that something you were interested in as a kid, being young? Were you just interested in that or was there something else driving? I've always been interested in space, you know, wanting to be an astronaut since I was a very young kid, uh, as, as many people do. And I really stuck with that. And by the time I was going through, you know, the back half of high school, I was looking around at universities and programs that really interested me. My older brother is an engineer, a civil engineer, who went to Carleton University in Ottawa. I had visited him a few times, so I kind of knew the city, knew a little bit about the campus. And one thing that really stuck out to me about Carleton uh, University is that their aerospace engineering program is broken down into four different streams, different specializations one of which is space systems. You're, so you're thinking things like rocket propulsion, orbital mechanics, how to design satellites. And that's all done at the undergraduate level, where typically a lot of other universities in Canada, in the States, uh, you only get into that sort of stuff in the master's and in graduate level courses. So that was very appealing. Uh, and with the, you know, my familiarity with the city, I, I liked Ottawa and I applied to Carleton. I guess not so much off topic, but why why does that program exist so early on at Carleton? Is there like a relationship there just being based in Ottawa with maybe the space agency or other government functions? I guess, why does that relationship and kind of strength of that program exist? I can't say if it's any specific relationship, but Carleton is quite good at branching out their engineering disciplines into more focused streams. Almost every single engineering discipline at Carleton has several, even up to a handful of different specializations that you can take at the undergraduate level uh, in a way that also leads to smaller class sizes, uh, you know, more focused uh, time with professors and in, in the work. I, I think that's just one of the ways that Carleton differentiates itself in the engineering community. And can we talk a little bit about that exposure? So you do your undergrad, you do your master's at Carleton, and you just get that exposure to the space, which obviously leads you to starting a company in the space area. Um, what was that exposure like uh, versus, you know, I know there was that interest coming into it, but how did that exposure really help you? Did you just, did you just unlock all these different avenues? Hey, like there's problems in this area. Uh, just, you know, a deeper understanding. I'd love to learn a bit more about how that really set you up for success. So at Carleton, one of the things I learned in graduate school is that students get to keep all of the research and IP ownership that goes on with their work. 
And I sat in on a summer seminar uh, about that same topic, about how you know, the university will help you even patent some of the research you do. Uh, you know, they'll help you spin out into companies. There's a lot of support on campus for entrepreneurs starting your own business from things you develop at the school. So in that regard, it's a really great environment. And the other thing uh, that really helped was the SEDS Canada uh, Young Entrepreneur Program. It's called YSpace. That's external to Carleton itself, but that was a program that I came across while in graduate school, about halfway through my degree. And that was really the catalyst for thinking more about the entrepreneurial path and spinning some of the research out of Carleton and starting Alberta. And I saw there on your LinkedIn, uh, there was a European space agency. They had an engineering challenge. Uh, what was that experience like? Uh, did it, did the idea for Abruda come out of that or other ideas you're working on? It seemed like a really interesting experience. Oh, it, was it was a like? great experience. Uh, it was a little bit uh, before Abruda was catalyzed. But what that program is, is the Concurrent Engineering Challenge. So the European Space Agency every year puts on different programs for students at undergraduate and graduate levels. This specifically was for master's and PhD students to go travel to ESA, uh, one of their facilities in Belgium, and work with real European Space Agency engineers who actually design the satellites. They help teach these, these students, these grad students, you know, the, the proper processes that show them the tools they use, how to get comfortable working in this sort of environment so that when you are done your degree, uh, you can enter the industry with that much more knowledge. So it was a week-long program over in uh, Europe. I was the only Canadian, actually the only person outside of Europe to be, to be chosen. And that's also due in part to the fact that Canada is a member state of the European Space Agency. So we're able to participate in uh, almost all of the events and programs and opportunities that go on over on Europe uh, by being uh, good friends with Where did the idea for, um, for Ibruda come from? So you kind of mentioned Carlton, just all that assistance there with helping to commercialize and, and everything there. Uh, where did the idea come from? Did it come from some research you were doing at the university? Uh, you know, it's definitely a very unique idea. And was that mainly just due to where you were, the education, the master's program, the undergrad you were doing? So Obruda was really catalyzed uh, by the work that I was continuing on from my now co-founder, Dr. Kirk Havel. Uh, he, he had started uh, his graduate studies at Carleton two years before me. Uh, worked on a problem in his Master's of Applied Science in which he looked at how do you detumble space debris once you capture it. So space debris flying around up there at almost seven and a half kilometers a second, the piece, uh, piece of space debris the size of a baseball, if it hits you, it has the same impacting force as 10 tons of TNT. So everything flying around in space is extremely dangerous. And it's a growing problem. We, we have to be able to one day capture it, remove it from orbit, and have a safer orbital environment. So Kirk was looking at ways to capture and, and detumble this debris, but he only looked at what happens when you've already caught it. 
the scope of the problem was so large there that I came in after the completion of his master's and continued the work. So I looked at everything up from getting to the debris and deploying a large net to wrap around it and capture it. And then his research came in where you detumbled it and towed it back to burn down in the atmosphere. So together through that joint research, you know, I, I was obviously asking him a lot of questions. Uh, we actually had desks next to each other in our graduate office. And through that, we became quite close. And eventually when this young space entrepreneur competition uh, came across my desk, uh, I, I asked Kirk if he wanted to enter that competition together. And so, you know, we, we, we took that leap. We had no prior business experience. We didn't really know what it meant to be entrepreneurs, but the competition helped us uh, think through writing of an initial business plan, business models, how we wanted to approach this problem. And it really gave us a, a little bit of experience into that, that world there. So we worked on that for about six months uh, and eventually you know, presented at this uh, conference for the, the finals. And we liked the experience so much that we continued on over the summer, maybe a little bit more than we should have been, you know, focus on your schoolwork, but we really enjoyed the company and eventually incorporated it to go after larger federal government grants and funding opportunities. What does Abruta do? Like, obviously maybe the average listener is maybe not super aware of what's going on in space and the needs and the problems up there, but what is the business focused on and really what does it do? So Abruta Space Solutions is a autonomy company developing software and other infrastructure for the in-space economy. Now we did start out focusing on space debris, but as we got out into the market, we were surveying customers. You know, we, we quickly learned that there are no paying customers at this point in time. We're just not there yet on the policy side of things, on the regulation side of things. And there is no incentive for customers to clean up their trash in space. Yeah, it's hard enough to get people to clean it up on Earth. You can imagine trying to go all the way to space to do it. So after surveying the market and, and really talking with uh, everyone we could possibly you know, get in front of, we realized that there was almost a, a more immediate problem out there. Satellites are single use. They go into space and often they'll just turn around and you know, point their satellite dishes or take pictures of the earth. And that's extremely beneficial. Without space, we wouldn't have things like access to phones or the weather in the morning or Google Maps as you're driving down the street. It's extremely important to our day-to-day -day lives, but the infrastructure in space is extremely fragile right now. You launch a satellite and it takes a one-way trip into orbit. If that satellite runs out of fuel, it's done. It, it can't continue on. That would be like if you had to carry a lifetime supply of fuel with your car when you drove off the lot. That would be tanks trailing behind you for 10 kilometers long. That's, that's unsustainable. It would be like if your airplane dropped you off at the airport and then they scrapped the whole thing because it can't be reused. That's unsustainable. And so what we noticed is that there's a large push in the industry happening to make spacecraft reusable, repairable, and serviceable, the same way all of our infrastructure is on Earth. Uh, things like refueling these satellites, performing logistics to move satellites from one point in space to another so they don't have to use their own fuel, you know, just like you get on an airplane, 
and, and you use that fuel. Then you get on a taxi and you use that fuel. Then you walk a little bit and finally get to your end destination. There's different forms of logistics that can happen in space too. Things like repairing components. Right now, if you have your nice 4G antenna on your satellite and it's out of date and you want to put that new shiny 5G antenna on, well, you have to replace that entire satellite, even though all of those internals are completely okay and operating nominally, you still have to replace everything. Why can't we just swap the antenna out and put a new one on? So all of these questions about repairability are, are really coming up to the, the surface, coming into the, the light of the commercial market. And there's a lot of great people out there working on this problem of how do you repair service and reuse these satellites and these assets in space. But the big elephant in the room is that we don't have ways to actually get to that satellite and repair it. We don't have the ability to fly up anywhere in space to get to any asset and perform these kind of servicing missions. Typically, how we've done this in the past uh, would be with astronauts on board vehicles like the space shuttle or SpaceX's Dragon capsule. You know, they're flying with a stick. If the astronauts, these best pilots, some of the best pilots in the world are flying these vehicles in space. And it's only very, very recently that this is being done by computers autonomously, almost like a self-driving car. And so that's where we come in at Alberta. Uh, our specialty at the company is in what's called rendezvous, proximity operations, and docking. That's the ability to fly from point A to point B in space. And we're doing it autonomously, the same way a lot of self-driving cars are starting to get on the road. There's a lot of work being done there. We're really mirroring a lot of that technology, but up in the space environment. Are you looking to build this technology and, you know, maybe for an example, someone like a SpaceX would buy it or use it or license it? Or are you also looking to like be more of like a services based business and someone would hire you to do that? So right now uh, we are a little, little bit on the latter side, um, somewhat of a services uh, business, but it's more of a product. Uh, when you think about it, we supply the pilots for these satellites and these vehicles flying around in space. How done right now, you know, teams on the ground, large teams. You may have seen those videos of NASA. They have a, a huge room, 50 people operating one vehicle. Well, our vision is to have one person operating hundreds at a time. Just a, a single control room, a single computer can manage all of these due to the autonomy baked in. So at the end of the day, we are not building the spacecraft. We are not supplying services. We're not refueling anyone in space. We're not towing anyone around in space. But we help those companies who want to build these services get there faster, more reliably, and safer. We supply that pilot, they integrate it into their vehicle, and then they can get into space and start uh, helping out the inorbit economy. What is your testing process like? I imagine you could do lots of models with simulators, but... Do you have to do lots of like real world testing in space to make sure this is working? I'd love to learn a bit more about the testing process. It's a lot of testing in simulation, a, a lot of uh, coding there, and then also in labs on the ground that emulate the space environment. Uh, at Obruta, actually, you know, we went out and tried to buy a simulator to start working on this problem. And we realized that nothing on the market 
really fit the bill. So, so one of our very first developments of the company was to build uh, really one of the best uh, RPO simulators out there. The ability to you know, work on a computer and figure out how will your spacecraft interact with another. Uh, and that's what's really allowing us to now build out our autonomy technology. And that translates into labs on the ground. Uh, currently, we have a nice partnership with our uh, graduate lab we, we spun out of at Carleton University and those facilities, uh, which help us work with some of the, the hardware that complements our software and test that before it goes into space. Uh, we're also looking at having to test things in space. And that's really one of the big difficulties in the, the space vertical is that you need to prove the reliability of your product in space before customers will buy it. Because there's no guarantee if, if you sell a product to someone, but it's never been to space, it might get there. It costs a lot of money to get there and then it could fail. And so you really need to gain that flight heritage. And that's the capstone of, of any space startup is getting to space the first time. Can you explain a bit more about like how that process works? So you're developing your own product. You're based in Ottawa. Um, how do you how do you get that up to space? How do you test that? Like how how what's the how, like what's the signal? Like how do you connect with the device once it's in space? How are you proving that? Are you sending up cameras to also like have a visual on things? I guess I'm just very interested in like how that process looks because I I just do not have a good so. The space has come a long way in the infrastructure and the support to get you there. Uh, you know, in the past, it used to only be nations that could do this, governments, lots of money, and everything was done under these uh, national organizations, NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, European Space Agency. Since then, a lot of the aspects of the infrastructure required to get to space has become privatized. You know, this is most seen in SpaceX and their real dominance of the launch industry. Um, at this point in time, it's obviously a lot of money, but if you have deep enough pockets, you can send something to space on a SpaceX rocket. That never used to be the case, at least for the price point that we're at now. But the same is happening in other forms of the infrastructure, like the ground stations used to communicate to the satellites in space. So. At this point, we don't have to build anything like that in-house. You know, we don't have to build the launch vehicle. We procure it. We pay for our ride to space. We don't have to build the ground station and all those communication dishes and all that infrastructure. We can contract a company to talk to our satellite for us and bring the data back. Uh, same thing for all of the other components on a satellite. If you want to have an engine, a propulsion system, you can go buy that today because there's a very mature and robust propulsion industry. The same thing for solar panels or computers and anything else you can think of that goes into the satellite. So the way I look at it and the reason that Alberta is uh, providing this autonomy software and really this, this autonomous pilot uh, and not building the entire whole system is that we don't need to anymore. We, if you have deep enough pockets, you could go buy an entire satellite right now. And the missing piece that that really crucial puzzle piece is the autonomy capability, the ability to fly up to another spacecraft and service it, repair it. And so that's where we're really focusing all of our efforts because the rest of the industry is, is quite mature and continuing to grow. How big is the opportunity for Abruda? Like, 
you know, you, again, I'm going to use SpaceX as an example, just because it's one of the largest and reported on, and, you know, their subsidiary Starlink, and, you know, Blue Origin with all Jeff Bezos is putting into that. So obviously this opportunity has huge potential. What is kind of like a, you know, next 10 years look like for Bruta? Like how much infrastructure is in space? How many satellites are up there now that that is an opportunity that you could be working So we're at the very, very early stages of the in-orbit economy right now. Commercially, there's only a handful of companies uh, actually in space providing these satellite services. But there's hundreds and hundreds more in the pipeline, building up startups, you know, raising capital, increasing their technology development with the hopes of also entering this market in the next five to 10 years. And that's one thing with the space industry is there are quite long lead times. It will often take maybe five, seven, 10 years to even get to space that first time and have a commercially viable product which is quite different than software industry where you could be doing it maybe a month, you get your MVP out there. So with that in mind, uh, you know, over the next 10 years, we're going to see a drastic change in the space environment and how operations are going on there. Some of the industry reports are estimating that by 2031, there will be 14 billion in cumulative revenues from these kinds of satellite servicing activities going on in space. And that covers everything from refueling spacecraft to towing them around to inspecting them for insurance companies to see if they've been hit by space debris and something might be damaged. Uh, it, it's a massive opportunity there with many different service verticals within it. And so there's no real solid estimate of how fast it's growing just because we're so early in the process. And things are moving so fast. If, if you go back and look at those industry reports, it was only a $4 billion opportunity maybe two years ago. And then suddenly it was a $10 billion opportunity a year later. And now it's a $14 billion opportunity. So the industry is rapidly growing and, and really emerging uh, from these early days. And it's going to be quite exciting to see where it ends up in 10 years. Why do you think that opportunity is growing so much? Is it companies kind of like Starlink or... Uh, other similar types of companies that are providing, you know, internet services from satellites? Are we just like, is there more stuff being sent up there? Is there more that we can actually do with satellites now, like International Space Station? Is there going to be more examples of that? I guess, like, why is that opportunity growing? Is there just more things that we can be doing up there in orbit? The real catalyst for all of this in the true commercialization of space is the rapidly decreasing price to access it. Uh, because of SpaceX, the price to access space has already dropped tenfold, maybe a little bit more. And it's poised with some of these extremely large launch vehicles that are currently in development to potentially drop another tenfold. So you can imagine if the opportunity, the opportunity cost to access a new market dropped by a factor of 100 that market is going to be commercialized extremely quickly. And one of the unique things about space is that it is a infinitely growing market. Markets on Earth, we are always bound by the resources we have here, the number of people on Earth. But in space, when you think about it, and this is getting a little sci-fi, but you, know, you can expand to the moon, you can expand to Mars, you can expand into the asteroid belt. I'm sure in... 
thousands, tens of thousands of years, we may be even beyond the solar system or everywhere within it. So these space technologies pose a, a such a grand opportunity. If you get in early with infrastructure like this, you could be supplying this kind of technology forever in theory. And when you think about it with what Obrut is doing and, and our autonomy and docking technology, you know, you know, it's a long ways away, but when you watch something like Star Trek or Star Wars, you don't think about those ships landing on a planet. You don't think about them landing on the, the docking bay of, of something in space, but they do. And you can imagine that just how expansive the, those worlds and those economies are. That's the promise of space. So we're very early on in the stages and, you know, it's exciting to be here and see this brand new market unfold in front of us. And there's not many times in your life that you get to experience a completely new market emerge uh, commercially for arguably the first time. We're in the golden age of the commercial space uh, timeline. Working in a frontier market like that, how do you navigate regulatory the regulatory space or the potential regulatory environment that might be kind of unknown, or maybe it's a bit of a gray area. How has that been for you? Is there obviously Canadian regulations, American regulations like SpaceX, but what does it look like once you're kind of maybe up in space? So regulations are actually a very big uh, portion of all of this uh, market emergence. The, the rules defining some of these technologies just have never existed existed until now. Uh, for an example, space debris used to be uh, you had to maybe deorbit your spacecraft, try to deorbit within 25 years. There was never a hard and fast rule. You never received a fine if you didn't, but you know maybe it costed you a million dollars to keep some fuel on your spacecraft and, and deorbit it at that time. So companies would plan to do it, but it was never a, a must-have priority. Well, recently in the States, that regulation is starting to change. Uh, it's going down from 25 years to five years. So now the business case for removing space uh, junk, you know, debris at the end of a satellite's life when it goes from being a useful satellite to a block of metal flying around in space at seven and a half kilometers a second. Well, that business case starts to get a little more enticing. And what happens in another five years when the objects, the population in space doubles again. And now it's getting extremely dangerous to be up there. You're having to dodge these almost bullets multiple times a day. You're burning all of your fuel to do this. Well, then that regulation is going to happen and, you know, it's going to be revised. It's going to be dropped again. Maybe you have to remove your satellite within a month of it dying up in space. And so these regulations are extremely important because at the end of the day, Space is a tragedy of the commons. It's everyone's environment. There are no borders in space. We all share the road. And issues like space debris, satellite traffic management, how do you fly in a way that's not going to potentially collide with someone else? How do you communicate between nations that might not normally communicate, but both have satellites on collision courses in space? Who moves first? Now, those are all issues that are extremely real. And the, the policy and regulations are moving in the right direction. But just like any emerging industry, the technology is typically moving a little bit faster. So it's a game of cat and mouse to, to keep those together. I love to chat a bit about 
the team aspect, hiring a great team to achieve these goals. You know, you, you talked a bit about, you know, some rough timelines of, you know, potentially some companies being five to 10 years before they're kind of launching that first product. How do you really find the talent to work on a product like this? And also, how do you keep folks motivated, interested, curious in building for really that 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 long tail there um, when maybe other products out there, like you mentioned, maybe you can spin something up in a month or two in software? So the team aspect of it is you know, obviously extremely important, just like any startup. Uh, the space industry does have a overwhelming amount of truly passionate people in it. And that, I think that's one of its greatest strengths. It's, it's very diverse. There's a lot of different perspectives, which is great for any industry to have. And it's, it's moving in the right direction as well. Um, the people in it, like I said, are extremely passionate. They, they want to be here. They want to be working towards these, these things much bigger than any of all of us, uh, you know, building new rockets, building new satellites, space settlements. It's, it's all in there and it gets everyone fired up and it's a great community to be in. Uh, but one of the bigger problems is just there isn't enough. There's a great lack of talent in the aerospace industry. And it's something that certainly it's been on the rise year over year uh, for the last while with new people entering the market, um, you know, going through universities, uh, starting to graduate and, and enter the, the uh, workforce. And things like you know, SpaceX and really that ability to make space cool again, right? Back in, back in the, uh, the 60s and the 70s and 80s, you know, the number one job that kids wanted to be was an astronaut. You know what it is now? It's a YouTuber or a TikToker or a podcaster. Uh, Astronaut has fallen down that list. I, it was somewhere around five or seven. And last I saw, it wasn't even on the list at all. And so it's great to see that passion for space start to ramp up again, both you know, with the, the youngest kids coming up. You know, they're, they're going through school. They're getting inspired again. Space is cool again. Uh, but also, you know, the kids in high school and university who are seeing this this industry kind of grow and bloom and they want to be a part of it too. And I, I think that's great, but it's everyone's job to help invigorate the uh, aerospace industry, get new talent in it, you know, get people excited about space again. I'd love to stay on that thread of, you know, the Canadian space ecosystem. Like I know you went through CDL, there's Space Stream, um, and there's some other great Canadian space companies. What does that ecosystem look like? Is it collaborative? Are you are you working together? Um, and how do you see that kind of growing over the next five ten years? Yeah, Canadian space ecosystem is you know very welcoming. It's a it's a great community to be in. Um, it's definitely not as large as some of the other other industries out there. Uh, but you have to remember that you know Canada was one of the firsts in in space. Uh, you know we're we're going to be potentially the second country to have persons on the moon. So we do punch above our weight for sure. Um, and that just shows from the companies coming out of here, companies like MDA massive, but you know, they supply things like the, the Canada arm to the international space station companies like Telesat, uh, massive telecommunication companies who are competing on the same scale as SpaceX and Amazon. So the, the companies as well as the startups, uh, operating in the Canadian ecosystem are yeah, very diverse. We we also prioritize a lot of things um, more so than some other countries. You know, a lot of environmental aspects, earth observation, supporting agriculture, um, and also living in remote areas. Technologies that you can all 
do in space, but bring back for the benefit of Earth uh, and do it in a sustainable environmental way. That's kind of one of the, the strengths of the Canadian industry and the people in it, the people running it are, are just great people as well. What is it like raising capital for a space company? Is there specific challenges or nuances? Um, and, you know, is, is, is there investors kind of focus on this space? Is it, is it hard to meet them? I'm assuming there's a lot of, you know, maybe government grants and support there just because of the interesting nature and that kind of long tail of the space. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. It's, it's certainly a little bit different uh, because of the long time horizons of the industry. Um, it is very capital intensive, as I mentioned earlier. Typically, you have to go to space before anyone will buy your product. And to get there is comparatively quite expensive compared to, you know, something like deploying an app on the app store. So in order to um, get that MVP built, get that initial, that first sale uh, dollar, you're putting in a lot of capital. So typically space companies, hardware, you know, there's some software in the industry, but the hardware companies and, and general other space companies end up raising quite a bit more capital uh, than comparative software companies. You have to also find the right kind of investor, someone who is agreeable with your vision. This They're committed for this longer time horizon. You know, there isn't a three to five year turnaround on the investment, on the fund lifetime. It's going to be closer to seven to 10. And so that's going to come from investors who are specifically interested in investing in space, which more and more funds are popping up every year. More people are exiting and and creating their own funds to continue investing in the sector. And also other maybe non-traditional areas like uh, family offices, you know, VC is great and all, but there are other investment mechanisms and family offices, uh, private individuals are great ways to uh, find those partners who have that same mindset are willing to take a bit bigger of a bet on a longer time horizon uh, than maybe some, you know, more generalist VCs who, who don't see deep tech as a, as a viable investment strategy. I'd love to jump in the quick fire round. I'd like to know what your favorite book is. And if it's hard to pick a favorite, maybe you're something you're currently reading or you're about to read. I do particularly enjoy uh, Chris Hatfield's, the Canadian astronauts um, biography. That was something that I read uh, when I was in my first year of uh, undergraduate degree. And, you know, that kind of inspired me. Uh, you know, it got me ready, fired up to take those space courses and to you know, stay on this path. And I, I think a lot of the wisdom in that book is uh, you know, very true and applicable to almost anyone out there. So I, I highly recommend it. What are you most excited about in the next 12 months personally and professionally? Uh, personally, you know, just continuing to uh, keep doing what I'm doing. I, I'm enjoying my work-life balance right now. I have a, you know, great uh, friends and family around me. And uh, I think I'm at a really good point in my life. Uh, professionally, similarly, uh, things are going great at Obruda, and we are actually gearing up to get into space for the first time. We're going to be flying some of our software on a little robot in space, and uh, I, I think that's a great accomplishment for any space startup. It's, it's really a, a key milestone and a, a checkbox along the way, so I think we're going to be remembering that moment for a long time. How do you deal with hard times? Being a founder is tough, especially in a kind of a frontier space like space. Uh, do you have any 
things that you do that just kind of help you through those tough times? It can certainly be lonely at times. Um, you know, one of the things I think that helps me is I just have an incredible uh, support network of friends and, and family. The you know, others at the company, my co-founder, Kirk, um, you know, he, he's great, supports me. We support each other. And we always try to have a, a good work-life balance with the company. You know, we, we can put in a lot of hours and we're not working a 40-hour work week, that's for sure. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, you have to be able to look out for each other and lean on one another when you need it. And I think that's a great thing about the company and just the, the external support network I have as well. It's uh, very good at helping deal with, you know, whatever is going to come at me. Well, that's all the questions on my end. I'd like to open up the mic to you just to chat about anything about the company, uh, you know, maybe about your passion about the space and how others can get into it. But just anything you'd like to chat about the mic. I'm very appreciative of the time uh, you've given me in the, the platform. Um, I, I always advocate for the envir environmental sustainability of space, trying to push that forward. Much like climate change, it's something that academics have been talking about for quite a while, but uh, it's taken a little bit of time for the commercial industry to catch up on. And we're, we're starting to see it now, which is good. But I always want to push that message. You know, you got you to gotta leave the environment better than you found it. And right now we're not doing a great job of that. So I, I want to reach a point in the future where, you know, we both have commercialized space. We have a bustling economy up there, people living and working in space, but it's also a sustainable environment. Uh, on, you know, on that same uh, vein, I, I just want to support others to get into the space industry, you know, get excited about it. There's a lot to be had here, no matter your discipline, uh, really, we can use every single aspect of it in space, in, in one aspect or another. If you're not technical, great. We need artists, we need policy, we need law, we need everything in the industry. So. At the end of the day, everyone's welcome, and I'm, I'm sure there's a place that, that you can find, or you know, it's a very welcoming community. People will help you find a place if it doesn't already exist. So yeah, thank you so much for the, the time today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Kevin, it's been a lot of fun, super insightful, and uh, super excited to follow along on uh, the first uh, expedition into space. It's going to be a lot of fun. I appreciate it. It's been a great episode, and uh, thank thanks you. for coming on. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.